looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Pop culture, social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Al. Thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week. And this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 80. Can you believe it? 80 episodes of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dwoskin Show. As always, I am your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Great to be back. Episode 80. Can you believe it? I appreciate everyone who's been on this journey with me the whole time. And here we are. This episode has got everything. Drama, intrigue, comedy, drama, intrigue, all of it right here in episode 80. Our guest today is Mike Reese. Mike Reese, that's right. Television comedy writer, author, showrunner, writer, and producer of The Simpsons. The Simpsons. That's right. You know Mike Reese's name because it came up a lot during episode 55 with Al Jean, the current showrunner of The Simpsons. Al talked a lot about Mike. So what do we do? We went and got Mike to be on the show also. Lots of great stories from Mike on The Simpsons, The Critic, The It's Scary Shandling Show, The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, not necessarily the news. We talk all about his book and his podcast. It's amazing. You're going to be excited that you buckled up for this one. And that's coming up in just a few minutes. Hopefully you caught last week's episode with Rebecca Metz. Amazing episode. So many great stories. If you're new to the podcast, you have 79 amazing episodes to catch up on. We're always welcoming new folks to the podcast, so we're excited to have you. We have six more episodes this calendar year, and they're all planned out, and they're all spectacular. We're going to close out 2021 huge. You're going to be glad you came along for the ride. I mentioned earlier episode 55 with Al Jean. It's a great bookend to this episode with Mike Reese. Both of them were original writers with The Simpsons. Both of them have served as showrunner of The Simpsons. They have so many great stories. And Mike and I talk a lot about his book, Springfield Confidential, Jokes, Secrets, and Outright Lies from a Lifetime of Writing for The Simpsons. Hey, who is calling? Hello? Hold for Mr. Burns, please. Hello, Jeff. Hello. I hear you have that Mike Reese on the show with his new total dime novel. Or some sort of serial book, or whatever you kids have nowadays. Yes, Mike Reese is here. I'm glad to hear word is getting out. Yeah, he wrote Springfield Confidential, a tell-all book about working on The Simpsons. Are you concerned that he may have shared one or two stories about you that he shouldn't have? No, on the contrary. There isn't nearly enough about me in the book. Too many omissions. What do you think was missing? I mean, there was the time I, I had tried to have that Homer Simpsons doll put down. Ah, yeah, that terrible Mr. Homer Simpson. Is that really... Well, there was that time when I made that poor Lisa Simpson girl cry when I was trying to use the technology about recycling to kill more marine life. I'm telling that would have helped hundreds of humans. I couldn't agree more. Of course, there was also the time that I stole a trillion dollars and gave it all to Fidel Castro. Worthy donation, sir. And of course, the time I tried to block out the sun. People were always worried about me being upset over one child crying. I was going to make them all cry. Hmm, would have been excellent. Excellent. And so, for obvious reasons, I'm demanding a reprint. You must focus on me. I'd say you've done more than enough for this town of Springfield. In fact, I say we'll travel down to this Mike Reese fellow's house and do so immediately, in person. Be very effective. Will it, though? Yes, Smithers, come. Oh, I can't move my legs. Smithers, you'll have to be my legs. Allow me to mount you, my trusty steed. Giggy up, sir. We'll insist on a reprint and call it Burns Confidential. Sounds like a page-turner, sir. We ride. Oh, boy. It sounds like I got to remember to warn Mike Reese about this one. Let me write that down so I don't forget. In the meantime, it's time for the social media tip. This is the part of the show where I share a little bit of my social media knowledge with you. Some stuff I heard on the street. Some 411 up our social game together. This week, Twitter is all a buzz about Twitter blue. For $2.99 a month, you can put bookmarks into categories. You can change your app icon. You can change the color of your Twitter profile. You can have up to 30 seconds to realize you made a mistake on your tweets and update it and fix it. 
all for $2.99. Little trick, you can also delete a tweet and just fix it and resend it. It's not like once you send a tweet, it's done in stone. It's not. It's very redoable. Uh, you can change app icons. I think the only thing that might be a great kind of cool benefit to the $2.99 a month is you get early access to some future Twitter features. My friend who has it did not fall in love with it right away, so I'm holding off on it. But if you try Twitter Blue, if you're paying $2.99 a month, let me know on Twitter what you think. I'll share it with the group later. Check it out. Don't check it out. But if you think those features speak to you, $2.99 is not that bad to help amplify your social media experience. And that's the social media tip. I do want to take a quick second and thank Lee for buying me five coffees from Buy Me a Coffee, helping support the show. Thank you, Lee. I'm drinking them right now. And cheers to you. Everyone else, what are you waiting for? Head on over to jeffisfunny.com. There you can find the link to Buy Me a Coffee. Buy me some coffees. I'll shout out your name on the show. You support the show. How amazing is that? I love you in advance. While you're at jeffisfunny.com, home of Live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin Show on the World Wide Web. You can also click on my YouTube link and follow me on YouTube for Crossing the Streams. That's a live show I do with my pals every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We talk about great TV shows you should be binge watching, streaming, catching up on, not missing out. We're also live now simultaneously on the Fireside Chat app, firesidechat.com slash Jeff Duoskin. There's a link where you can request access to the Fireside. You can join the show. You actually log in while we're live. I can bring you on stage and you can talk to us about shows that we've talked about in the past or ones that we're talking about in that episode. How cool is that? Also, don't forget to follow and like the podcast on any of your favorite podcast apps. Podchaser, CastBox, Apple, GoodPod, Spotify, iHeartRadio, whatever podcast app you listen to. Hit follow, hit like, hit subscribe. It's totally free. And then tell all your friends about it, tweet about it, anything you can do to spread the word. I am so appreciative of you. I also want to thank everyone who supports the sponsors week after week. I can't thank you enough. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting live from Detroit, the Jeff Tawaskin show. And that's how we keep the lights on. This week's sponsor is the Leftorium. Did you know that 8 to 10% of all people in the world are left-handed? That's right. That means if you look to your left and then to your right, there's a good chance that both those people are actually right-handed and you'll need to widen your sample size to find a left-handed person. If you're left-handed like me, Jeff Duoskin, host of Live from Detroit, The Jeff Duoskin Show, you know how hard living in a right-handed world can be. Imagine being a child and not being able to cut things because all scissors are made for right-handed people. Imagine not being able to write in a notebook without smearing ink all over your hand. Well, wonder no more. With left-handed scissors, with left-handed notebooks, academic success is all but guaranteed. The Leftorium has it all. A full kitchen department stocked with left-handed can openers. That's right, left-handed people. Eating food out of cans is no longer just for right-handed people. Left-handed people, tired of staring at hot things in ovens? Knowing that you're about to burn yourself? Well, don't worry. Now, the Leftorium has a full collection of left-handed oven mitts. That's right. Now you can remove things from the oven without fear of burning your hands. Being a left-hander living in a right-handed world has never been easier thanks to the Leftorium. For hundreds of years, left-handed people have been forced to live in a right-handed world, but no more. The Leftorium is changing all of that with stores in every major mall across the country. If you're tired of being left out... Head over to the Leftorium today. Use code JeffIsLeft when ordering for free shipping for all your left-handed needs. Ah, oh, this is so exciting. And I'm very excited. I know that 90% of my right-handed audience probably can't use this sponsor. But those 8 to 10% that do, it's going to be a life changer. So good luck with that. I have a can opener. I can't wait. I've been staring at a can of beans for the last six months that just been sitting there. I don't know why I bought it, but now I'm going to be able to open it. So I'm so excited that the Leftorium is now in my life. I'm also so excited to finally share my conversation with you that I had with Mike Reese. If you love The Simpsons, you're in for a wild ride. So many great stories. We go deep into Krusty the Clown and the late, great Jackie Mason and all the great work he did on The Simpsons. So many stories await you. Enjoy. Excited to introduce you to my guest today, writer, producer, showrunner, podcaster, 
Entertainment Weekly when he ran The Simpsons in season four with Al Jean called The Simpsons the greatest season of the greatest show in history. He was also named a missionary of joy by Pope Francis. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, comedic icon, Mike <laughs> Reese. Hi, great to be here. Thank you. Am I your first non-Michigan guest on this? No, no, no. I, I open it up to the world. Wow. I'm just live from Detroit. Okay. <laughs> That's very broad-minded of you. Yeah. My guests can be from anywhere. So. <laughs> so, Mike, you have such a rich history in the world of comedy. I'm interested to know, like, how did this all start? I mean, we can start, like, in Harvard. I think some of that was rooted and your partnership with Al Jean began. I can even go backwards. I'm even going to go so far back. You're going to go, geez, man. We'll just start again. I used to watch this show, Biography, on A&E. And every damn biography, no matter who they covered, it was just sort of some guy when he was five years old saw the thing and goes, that's for me. So David Copperfield saw a magic show when he was a kid and goes, I want to do that. And Charles Lindbergh saw a plane fly over his farm and said, I want to do that. And that's it. It goes back so early, I think, with most people that you can't credit teachers or someone they met. It's just sort of born in them. And that was it. When I was a kid, I used to watch the Ed Sullivan show with my family, which makes me like a thousand years old. But I would see the comedians, and that's what I focused on. They would give you a variety of different acts, and I'd always go, oh, I love these comedians. And the weird thing was, even at uh, like five or six years old, I'd be thinking, when a comedian would tell a joke, I'd go, I wish I wrote that. I never wanted to be the comedian. I wanted to be, I always figured there was a guy right backstage banging it out at a typewriter. I said, I want to be that guy. <laughs> now I am. That's awesome. I'll say, when I went to Harvard, I went to Harvard because I knew they had a humor magazine, but I never thought that would be a career. I never in a million years thought I'd be doing it for a living because I never met anyone who did it. I, I just thought I wanted to be a comedy writer the way other kids want to be an astronaut or be a football quarterback. It was just, that was my dream. But the reality was I'd go to Harvard, I'd write for the humor magazine, and then I'd become a funny banker, something like that. The guy who had a few jokes when he was breaking a hundred for you. The the fact that I wound up in comedy is just kind of beyond a dream come true. And a loss for the banking industry. <laughs> well, you know, you don't want a funny banker, you know, because they start to print their own money or thinking, hey, I can give him $95 instead of a hundred. So... It is for the best. Hey, going back to the Ed Sullivan show for a second, can you remember any of the specific comics that inspired you that you were on? Yes. I mean, it's almost embarrassing to say these days. I saw Woody Allen when I was a kid, and I just thought, this guy gets me. I just, I felt so in sync with the jokes. And again, I'm a five-year-old kid in Connecticut, and I may not be the only five-year-old Woody Allen got, but I just said, that's the kind of comedy I like. So it was him. He was the one I really liked. And then there was another key moment. I got to tell the story, which was, again, when I was a kid, there was a beloved national icon, a guy named Red Skelton, who had a variety show sketch comedy show and he was on the air for i think 23 years and the family would all watch him it's red skeleton every wednesday night and i remember thinking at about age seven or eight this guy sucks i said i'm eight and i'm funnier than this guy and that's a big moment when you sort of realize oh i'm better than someone who's doing it professionally and that the thing everyone tells you is great is not necessarily great and i only mentioned this story because i told it once at work and george meyer one of the other simpsons writers went me too he's the same thing he saw red skeleton as a kid and said i'm better than him so i don't know how many comedians red skeleton launched with his general suckiness <laughs> Thank God for Red Skeleton's mediocrity. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. You don't pull punches. No. I love that about you. So what is it about Harvard that so many funny people come out of, of Harvard? Well, people got to understand that. It's not like, you know, funny people come out of Harvard the way great comedians come out of the ghetto. It's not like it's a nurturing environment or a hilarious place to be. Harvard, I got to say, and I do say it in the book, it's one of my least favorite places on earth. And if a, if a giant sinkhole 
swallowed it up tomorrow. I drive up there and try and shake hands with the sinkhole and congratulate it. I just hated Harvard. And again, they had this humor magazine who's produced so many terrific comedy writers, but they are basically people who are running for cover from Harvard, seeking any getaway or sanctuary from this unfunny, pretentious, stuck-up, unfriendly institution. What's happened over the years is that, and Harvard has come to me and said, gee, there's all you lampoon guys who've achieved such great success, and you never give money to Harvard. And it's like, yeah, you suck, and we hate you. <laughs> and then when the Harvard lamp lampoon ran into some financial difficulties, they asked all their former alumni if they would contribute. And something like 97% of living alumni contributed money to the lampoon. So we know what we like. So again, I, I, I can only give credit to Harvard producing these funny people because Harvard had the lampoon. As precious as the lampoon is to them, it's such a great culture. They've only been antagonistic to it over the years. They've only wanted to shut it down over the years. And if you know the, the movie Animal House, that was uh, one of the writers was a Harvard lampoon guy. And the relationship between Harvard and the Harvard Lampoon was like the relationship between Faber College and the Animal House, between Delta House. How old is that reference? That's going on 45 years old. It's a classic, so it's it's all good. It's always going to stand. At Harvard is where you met Al Jean. Correct. I met him first week of school. I, you know, I went there to join the humor magazine. I had no real plans or dreams beyond that. And Al went there at age 16 to be a doctor. He had skipped two grades. He was a math major. And freshman week, I had my door open, and we had a rocking chair in the room. And Al said, he just walked by. He goes, can I rock in your chair? And we said, okay. And he came in and just rocked in my chair. And that was it. Al likes a rocking chair. And that's how I met him. And we became very quick friends. And he saw me join the humor magazine. He saw me join the Lampoon and said, that looks like fun. And Again, it, would, it had gotten me to Harvard. Al had no intention of joining the Lampoon, but he just put his massive brain to it, and he got on. He got on right away without really a lot of struggle. Two of you had such a uh, career together, right? I mean, you you went from place to place to place. Was it an actual like business relationship, the writing team, or did you just happen to go to all the same work at the same places? It all, uh, I guess, we were a team. You know, we were roommates sophomore year. He had gotten on the lampoon. I never thought about writing with him. I don't think he thought about writing with me. But we were roommates and we had bunk beds. And it was one night I just started before we all fell asleep. I was talking about magic books I had as a kid. And Al said, oh, I had the same magic book. It was a book called Spooky Magic. And we started kidding around about it. And it turned into an article. And it's the first thing we wrote together. And that was the article that got us discovered by National Lampoon magazine. They read that and they called the Harvard Lampoon and said, we just read your article in uh, Harvard Lampoon and we loved it. And I said to them, you read the Harvard Lampoon? They said, well, we've, we've been reading it for years and we just never saw anything funny before. <laughs> so that was it. So we got hired off this article, Spooky Magic. And 20 years later, when we formed a production company, we called it Spooky Magic. But that was it. They We'd written that one thing together. And then we wrote almost everything separately. And But they hired us at, at the National Lampoon as a team. And then they brought us out to Hollywood as a team. It is a business arrangement. When you hire a team in Hollywood, you pay them as one person. You know, starting writers get an amount of money, a weekly salary, and they start, They come in at scale. I don't know what it is anymore, but it's the lowest amount you can legally pay a person. And Al and I were splitting that for the first several years. And that was it. We would just go from place to place being hired as a team. And we wrote together for 16 years. Wrote every every line we ever wrote. Uh, we did it together as a team. Quite a team, like an Al. Is it Mike and Al or Al and Mike? <laughs> Funny you ask that. And that for about 15 years, it was Mike and Al. And then it slowly became Al and Mike. I could see 
Al just achieving dominance over me, which is fine. You know, he was better at it. It was, I think I'm the more outgoing guy. I'm the more fun guy to be around. So, hey, Mike and Al are here. But then as we went on, we got more and more responsibility. And Al is much more responsible than I am. So suddenly we became Al and Mike. And now we're just Al. (laughs) I'm just Al's friend. Yeah, it's the same issues that John Lennon and Paul McCartney had. (laughs) When Paul wanted to be uh, McCartney Lennon. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. They couldn't split that. You know, we do have a very Lennon-McCartney relationship. It sounds super arrogant to say that, but just there's always one guy in the team who wants to explore and change and let's do different things and be artists. And the other guy is always saying, let's just keep working hard and we've got a good deal here. And so that was it. Al was our McCartney. I was Lennon and he was the guy that made all the money and I'm the guy they somebody wants to shoot. So you guys wrote together on a million fun projects, stuff that I, I grew up watching you know not necessarily the news you know that show yeah hbo okay yeah i definitely watched that it's one of the first news parody shows that i can recall it's real you know i'm sure it means nothing to most people out there but look it up it's on youtube and i i never even thought to watch it again because it was a topical news sketch show and i thought it must age terribly but somebody probably illegally put every episode up on YouTube. And it's really funny. It stayed, it's still really funny to watch. It was a a sketch show that came out at the same time that MTV got big. And so we said, all right, let's do political, let's do the daily show at the pace of a rock video. So it moves very fast and a lot of quick cuts and that kind of thing. I remember Stuart Pankin, but the, the one thing that I remember very specifically is from watching Saturday Night Live going, oh, Rich Hall. This is Rich Hall from Not Necessarily the News. <laughs> yeah, a very talented guy. And then you did uh, Sledgehammer, and you did one, an episode of Charles in Charge. That's got it. I'm surprised it's not the top of the list. And, then... <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, we Al and I wrote a Charles in Charge, and, you know, terrible show, terrible show. And we wrote a script, and they said, no, nah, we don't like this. Write another one. Which, you know, you're not supposed to do. They paid for one. So we wrote a second complete script out of which they used one line. And it wasn't even a joke. They used the straight line. So that was it. That's our contribution to Charles in Charge. All right. Well, you wouldn't want to take much more credit for Scott Bayo than that. <laughs> the, and then you worked for Johnny Carson, The Tonight Show. That's exciting. That was very exciting. And then <laughs> you took credit for writing the worst Karnak ever? Yes, I did. It's, it, it, I'll tell that story real quickly, which was when Al and I were working at The Tonight Show, we had to write 60 jokes a day. We had a quota, and it was just a terrible system because I think we could have written 15 great jokes a day, but instead we wrote 60 crappy jokes. You know, maybe 10 were good and 50 sucked, but they just wanted that number. So one of those 60 terrible Karnaks I wrote went on the air, and it bombed utterly. It just... It didn't even it didn't even bomb. It was just sort of played to silence like the audience was waiting. They kept thinking, well, a joke must be coming because we know that wasn't a joke. It was disastrous. And then six months later, Johnny Carson's doing Karnak again. And I go down and I see on the cue cards, they gave him that same joke. I don't know what clerical error it was, but he goes out, he does that joke and it got a huge laugh. And it was like it was such a wake up call for me going, you know, I've been been at it now for about 10 years. I go, I don't get comedy at all. There are no rules to this that a joke, you know, it was like a perfect science experiment. Same audience, same comedian, same room. And one night it bombed and the other night they loved it. And by the way, I'm with the audience that hated the joke. It was a terrible joke. Maybe it was just the way he delivered it. He added a certain pause. Maybe there was something in the news that people connected it to differently. It's got to be it. There's got to be a a million variables. And then from there, Scary Shandling Show. Correct. Love that show. That's nice. And you're sure you mean that. Like people always tell me they love it. And then we find out, 
Oh, they meant the Larry Sanders show. No, no, no. I mean both. Okay. Uh, <laughs> this is the one where he broke the fourth wall. No, I love that one. I love the theme song, everything about it. It's a classic. Yeah, I thought all the Gary Shandling stuff. Larry Sanders was a brilliant show as well, but it's Gary Shandling show was great. He was, yeah, he was a brilliant guy. And he was a John Lennon. He was a guy just always wanted to do something different and change TV with every project and very meticulous, a hard hard man to work for very difficult boss which was too bad because he's a very very nice man he was one of the comedians i remember because my parents would watch and i loved gary shandling there's like one you know certain jokes always stick out in your head and he's like is it porsche or porsche porsche okay i was driving my toyota <laughs> like that was decades ago you know it's just like that was just one of those things i just always remember his stand-up so i always enjoyed his shows a lot but that led you to the simpsons yes it did Yes, it's a amazing story where I don't know if Al and in his interview talked about it. We were working at It's Gary Shandling Show, which was the next to the lowest rated show on TV. It was 99 out of 100. And we were going on summer break and Alan Zweibel, the showrunner at Gary Shandling, had created a new show called The Boys. And it was set at the Friars Club. And he just, he had a cast of old comedians in it, which is just what I love and just what I wanted to write for. And Alan wouldn't hire us. He wouldn't hire us for the boys. And he hired our friends, Max and Tom. And Max and Tom had another job offer, which was to work on a new show called The Simpsons. The summer gig, and they turned down The Simpsons to work on The Boys, and we got the consolation prize. We worked on The Simpsons over the summer. And I got to say... I was so ashamed. I mean, you can, it's very hard to get in the mindset of what people thought of a cartoon show in 1988. Cartoons were just cheap, stupid Saturday morning entertainment. And so I took this job because I had nothing better. And I'm working on The Simpsons that first season. And I didn't tell anyone what I was doing. I literally just said, oh, I'm taking time off because I was so embarrassed to be writing for a cartoon. And then, of course, The Simpsons debuted. Well, it was just the summer job. So I go back to It's Gary Shandling show. I'm again working on the next to the lowest rated show on TV. Simpsons debuted to the highest ratings in the history of the Fox Network. So it was an instant hit. Not a lot of historians get that right. It was it was a hit from episode one. And meanwhile, I had another six months working for Gary Shandling on a show that not only was nobody watching, but at that point it had been canceled. So we were sitting there, we're working like 90, 100 hours a week making this show that no one would ever see, except you, I guess. You watch it. <laughs> Personally, thank you then. Yeah. Thank you. That's it. I wish we could have dedicated the shows to you. We could have done jokes about your family. <laughs> I would have loved that. That would have been <laughs> that would have been so special. So once The Simpsons was a success, you could then tell your family and friends that you were working on a cartoon. Correct. Yeah. Had you watched any of the stuff from the Tracy Allman show? Prior? Yes. Oh yeah. I knew the the shorts very well. I I like the shorts and. I, that was it. I was a big fan of Sam Simon, co-creator of the show. I'd seen his name for years and years on shows I loved, on Taxi and Cheers and that kind of thing. And so I said, and his name was Sam Simon. I so I assumed he's like 50 or 60 years old. And I go in to meet with him and he's my age. He was like two years older. He was just a child prodigy of comedy and he was running the show Taxi at age 23. So he's an amazing talent. And I was a huge fan of Matt Groening, who was an underground cartoonist in LA and I used to read his comics. So it was fun to be doing it. And the job that summer, Al and I wrote three of the first six episodes. And, you know, we would kick around ideas with Sam, Simon, and Matt Groening in their trailer. They didn't even have a real office. All we had was a trailer. And it was just fun. We never thought it would turn it into anything. We, I tell this story too much, but I'll tell it. Maybe this will be the last time ever. It was a couple of weeks before the show came on. I was sitting in the trailer with the other writers. And I said, how long do you think this show is going to last? And everyone said six weeks. That was it. Everyone, six weeks, six weeks, six weeks. Sam Simon said, you know, mind you, we'd made 13. And we didn't think we'd even get to show them all. And Sam was the most optimistic. He said, look, I think they're going to let us show 13. 
but don't worry, no one's ever going to see it. It won't hurt your career. That's funny. Looking back now that we, you've just passed 700 episodes and yeah. entering season 33 and 34 already pocked in. That's yeah. funny. Nobody saw it coming. And maybe that's it. Maybe that was the key to the success of the show was we were just having fun. And I think it kind of came across that way. It was interesting reading the book. I didn't know. I knew Sam Simon had left the show. I never understood why. It was interesting that the press and everyone gave Matt Groening all the credit. Mm-hmm. And that it that just caused some real internal issues there between them. Anyway, it was that was interesting. One of the many interesting stories in Springfield Confidential by Mike Race. I wrote a book about my first thirty years at The Simpsons, mostly to get it right, to get the the story straight out there. So I just told all those tales, and the amazing thing was, it came out, and some it was an Israeli critic said you hid all the dirt, and I go, what do you mean? He goes, there must be scandal, there must be dirt. I go, and it wasn't until that moment it hit me. No, there's no dirt. We had a little. It was a little rocky at the start because Sam Simon did not get along with Matt Groening. I think Matt Groening got along fine with Sam Simon. He's one of the most affable men in the world. But Sam, you know, was a handful. He was a difficult man and a brilliant, difficult guy. So that's one scandal. And then eight years later, we had one bad day. And that's it. We had no other trouble, no other friction in 33 years of The Simpsons. And that's, I think, the reason the show's been going for 33 years is everybody gets along and everybody respects each other's talent. That's amazing. So you were you were showrunner with Al for season three and four. Correct. Season four being the greatest season of the greatest show in history, according to Entertainment Weekly. Now, mind you, I'm sorry I have so many stories here. It was Al and I both, we thought, well, season three, we did pretty good. We liked those shows. Season four, we go... It's slipping. That wasn't such a good year. We, you know, we worked like dogs to make season four. And I remember going to visit my parents at Christmas and the Entertainment Weekly year-end review came out and they said, season four of The Simpsons, the show is going downhill. It's not what it used to be. In case you're wondering when people started saying Simpsons is not what it used to be, it was season four of The Simpsons. Entertainment Weekly said that ruined my holiday made me feel the whole last year had been a waste. And then it was like 20 years later, they suddenly are calling it the greatest show in TV, the greatest season in history. And it's like, well, thanks. This feels great after ruining my Christmas. I feel like shows are judged very harshly while they're happening. And then a lot of times upon reflection, the brilliance can be seen because the um, you take away the expectations, take it for what it is and enjoy it. So that's great. All right. So here's my question. Okay. The season three, season four, top of the game, but then you leave. Right. And you go and you start The Critic, which I know both you and Al just love that show. And it's a good show. That's not what I mean. You're not upset that you created that show and left. That was a good decision. You created some magic with John Lovitz. But what what did it take to leave? Why would you leave The Simpsons in the first place? In the early days of The Simpsons, everybody left as soon as they could. The show was just brutally hard. The hours were really long. And the two years I ran the show, I gained... 70 pounds. I developed a heart murmur. I went to the doctor. You just work day and night. So I couldn't even have a doctor's appointment till after I had stopped running the show. And I go to the doctor and he says, you weigh 239. And I go, well, that's what Homer weighs. I couldn't believe it. That's how dedicated to my job. I gained enough (laughs) weight that I was actually turning into Homer Simpson. For the longest time, yeah, you quit the show as soon as you could. And so Sam Simon ran it for two years. Al and I did it for two years. Dave Merkin, two years. Oakley and Weinstein ran it for two years. That seemed to be all a human being could do. And then what happened is Mike Scully took over the show. He goes, this is not a workable environment. And he was, you know, he's a brilliant writer, but he was like Henry Ford. He just said, let's make this, let's run this a little better. You know, let's run this like a factory instead of a boutique. And he just put in systems to making this the show where suddenly we weren't working, you know, we were working 50 hours a week instead of 100 hours a week. And suddenly nobody quit the show anymore. And this is sort of, and this is, he set up a model where when Al G, you know, he worked for four years 
running the show, which seemed superhuman. And then Al Jean came back and replaced him and has been at it, I think, for 22 years. Now it's a job you can do forever. So in, in your book, you describe The Simpsons as 95% isn't writing, it's rewriting. Correct. So with all the rewrites upon rewrites upon rewrites upon rewrites, how does it go from the pitch to all these rewrites and like still maintain the coherency? I guess because it's always been gang written. One thing to know is almost every show is written that way. It seems unfeasible that every sitcom is written by a group of people sitting in a room. It's not written by one guy or one person writes the script and then six people sitting in a room rewrite it line by line over and over again. And somehow it turns into, if it's done right, that becomes a kind of cohesive, watchable show. It amazed me more to watch a show like Frasier. I mean, at least The Simpsons, it's anarchic and moves fast. And, you know, I always said... No one person can write an episode of The Simpsons. It requires 10 brains and 10 different backgrounds of writers and people who know a lot of different things contributing to the show and specializing in different kinds of comedy. But I, I watch different shows where I go, how did a gang write some beautifully crafted farcical episode of Frasier, something like that? But that's how it's done. It's a little miracle it works that way. Very interesting. Very interesting. And it's, it is amazing. I, I was fascinated by the whole concept of there's always a joke. Yeah. What's the longest you ever had to work to get the perfect joke? The story probably I tell in the book where I won't do the whole setup, but we needed a funny way to resolve a whole plot of an episode. It's the episode where Lisa becomes Little Miss Springfield, and we needed something Homer had done wrong that invalidated Lisa from being Little Miss Springfield. And it had to be a funny mistake, but an innocent mistake, nothing we would hate Homer for. And we just spent hours. I mean, I feel like it was three or four hours writing. Oh, and it had to be funny, too. That's the other <laughs> one. Had to be funny. And, you know, we spent hours to the point where you think, we're never going to get it, or that joke doesn't exist. And then it was around two in the morning, a writer who really never talked at all, he spoke up very little, just said, how about this? He said, on the form, there's a box that says, do not write in this box, and Homer writes, okay, in it. And we go, oh, that's it. Everybody go. You know, we weren't even, I don't think anyone even said thank you, or that's good. It's just... Oh, we can go home now. A, a silent acceptance. I like I like that. All you think about when you work on TV, to take a TV job, and this is how I rank every job I ever had, is how close to my house is it and how bad are the hours. You know, I'm, I'm proud of my career, but the dream job would have been a show across the street from me where we work three hours a day. I think that's everyone's dream job. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But that's it. I, I would rather be on a shit show that's in my apartment building than on a great show that's three subway stops away. I think that's completely reasonable. Okay, good. Who were your favorite guest stars? On the show? Oh, that's a great question. I love Kelsey Grammer. I think anybody we bring back a lot is someone we really love. So the the regular guys like that, Kelsey Grammer and Jackie Mason, who just, Jackie Mason is Krusty's father. We did an episode where we killed him. He goes, well, that's the end of me. I go, no, it's not. Sure enough, I, he's been back at least three or four times since then. And the guy's 92, and he's still a voice on The Simpsons. So I like him. I like Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy. There are certain people who just get the joke, and they know they're making fun of them, and they can do it. So he was great. And Richard Dean Anderson, the guy who played MacGyver, I remember. He was so funny. He was so clever and funny, and he ad-libbed a bunch of jokes that went in the script and you know here's Richard Dean Anderson nobody ever gave him a chance to be funny you know he just got to be handsome and MacGyver so I, I really like that and as I mentioned in the book I think we've had 800 guest stars on the show and there's there's maybe four nobody liked that were just unpleasant kind of egotistical we don't even mind the people who can't act if they're really trying. The Leonard Nimoy episode, if, if we're talking about the Marge versus the monorail, is uh, one of my favorite episodes. Because I, I always thought it was about Detroit, the monorail. Al Jean kind of shot that down. <laughs> 
I think I know Conan O'Brien came in with the idea. It was the famous John Swartzwelder who I think contributed a lot of ideas because he's from Seattle, which had, had built a monorail that nobody really used. So that was it was a lot of grounding, I think, came from that as well. It was an interesting story in your book where you talked about Al Jean having like this Rolodex memory of every episode and every joke. Yeah. When I was talking to Al and I said something to him later upon reflection, because anything I threw at him, he was like, oh, that would, that episode was this and this and that and had every detail across 32 seasons and all those episodes. And you mentioned it in your book because so I was like, OK, it wasn't. It's known. Should I tell that? St- I'm going to tell that story. I hate that I'm that guy. But here we go. I'm going to tell it where I pitched a joke once where grandpa says, I want to watch TV. And they said, who died? In, or I want to watch something else in the nursing home. And they said, who died made you boss? And he goes, Fred. We see a dead guy, Fred, on the ground holding the TV remote. And I tell this joke. Everyone in the room laughs. And that's how a joke gets in the script. And then Al said, I think we did that. And he says to the, the writer's assistant, pull up script 7F21. Now, that's a, we have every script archived. And so Al didn't say, pull up the one where Grandpa gets a boat or something like that. He goes, pull up 7F21, which means the 21st episode of season 7, 21 years ago. And she pulls up the script on screen. It goes, go to page 31, 32, 33. There's the joke. Let's keep pitching. It was like, we're all looking at him. And he doesn't, I would have at least done a victory lap. I think I would have run around the building once. Look how smart I am. But that was just, it's the way Google doesn't ask for applause when it comes up with something. I think sometimes when people can do stuff like that, they don't realize everyone can't. I think so. That's incredible. So what was it like working with, because you worked with Conan O'Brien, Judd Apatow, Brad Bird. There's some big names that came through The Simpsons. It's a good thing at The Simpsons. Like people go, isn't it great working at Simpsons? Don't you feel great? Or they think, you know, I, I get a big head about it. But it's like when you work at the show, you're always working with people so much better than you. You know, you got to be crazy to get an inflated ego. So that's it. You know, Judd Apatow, I, I've known Judd since he was 20 years old, and he's he's just great. He's better. He's a hundred times better at the job than I am. And it's like, I'm always just honored. Oh, he knows my name. I can be in the room with Judd Apatow. Same thing with Conan O'Brien. Again, I met him when he was a sophomore in college, and I go, well, this is the funniest man I ever met in my life. And I'm glad I get to hang around with him. So that's it. It's just a pleasure and an honor to be able to be friends with these guys, but to know there's people much better than you. You can work harder, you know, you can feel like you're at the top of your game and then say, oh, geez, I, I have to work a lot harder just to be, you know, in the same league as these people. With Brad Bird, you know, we didn't even know what he did. The Simpsons Animation Studio is way across L.A. It's the opposite end of L.A. from where we write the show. And we just knew Brad was there. He was just there. He never, almost never directed an episode or something. He was just consulting. But we would screen an episode, and there would be a great episode, but then we'd go, Wow, that shot is great. And they always got Brad Bird. It was always the one thing Brad had contributed to the episode. We all sat up and looked at. That's pretty cool. Back to Jackie Mason for a second and Krusty the Clown. How did so much Jewishness get kind of injected into The Simpsons? Because he's not just Jewish. He's Orthodox. He is Orthodox Jewish. It's It was funny. It was Jake Hogan and Molly Wolodarski came in with the idea that Krusty the Clown, you know, we'd established Krusty the Clown. He was just this silly clown. He couldn't read. That's something that kind of went by the wayside, but he was illiterate. And they came in with this story idea that Krusty the Clown is Jewish and he's the son of an Orthodox rabbi. It was basically the plot of the movie, The Jazz Singer. I think people know it. It's this venerable old movie. It was the first, I think, talking film, The Jazz Singer. It's been remade four or five times since then. And they said, Krusty the Clown with the jazz singer. And I remember the bosses were not loving the idea. They were not, Sam Simon was not fighting for it. And then Al said, oh, Krusty's real name could be Krustovsky. And it especially made James L. Brooks laugh so hard. He just, that killed him. 
And sometimes that's all you need is one great joke to help sell a premise. And I know that probably that episode would never have been done if Al hadn't made that one joke. And Al Jean, of course, was the token Catholic of our staff. He's not Jewish at all. And so that was it. Once we had the premise going, it was Sam Simon who said, let's, it was always Sam's idea, let's get the details right. Nobody used to care about that stuff in TV, but like when they took in the Albanian exchange student, Sam said, Let's get all the Albanian correct. I'm sure we would have just written gibberish and nobody would have known, but we had consultants come in and coach us in Albanian for it. So it was the same thing with that. To do Krusty the Clown, Orthodox Rabbi Father, we had three rabbis on the payroll that week just helping us write the script. And especially, you know, the last half of the show is a debate on the nature of Judaism and comedy. And you know, we'd have to call the rabbi and, and say, are there any uh, clowns in the book of Leviticus? And so that was it. So it remains a really scholarly debate at the end of that episode. It's a great episode. It's it's there's some funny things. I always think like when you do Jewish humor, non-Jews probably laugh, but there's always when it's aimed at when, when he when Omer's at Mel Brooks is Jewish. It's just things like that. It's just it's just so funny and kind of bringing it all together with Sammy Davis Jr. Yes, great. And Mel Brooks, I think, was from Kogan and Waladarsky, and Sammy Davis Jr. came from Sam Simon. I think he just happened to be reading Sammy Davis Jr.'s memoirs that week and said, I got the quote. I've got it. So that was it. A lot of people contributed. If you're interested, the Jewish angle very often on The Simpsons does come in from Al Jean. Al Jean is an Irish Catholic kid, and he just he's the one that validates, you know, Judaism is funny because he doesn't know this stuff. He doesn't have the context. He just goes, this is funny. That's funny. I like I learned, uh, the word schmendrick sounds funny to me. So he's the one that gives it the stamp. It's what Jackie Mason always says in his act, which was, he said, Gentiles love my routines and Jews always go, too Jewish. <laughs> exactly. And then Krusty gets bar mitzvahed because he wants a his star on the Jewish Walk of Fame in Springfield. <laughs> that was it. It was that episode just for fans of the show. The original premise was Krusty gets bar mitzvahed because his father dies and it gives him sort of a spiritual awakening. And I think we had that all written. And then someone said, why are we killing Rabbi Krustovsky? Everybody likes that character. So we rewrote it and then we we wound up killing Rabbi Krustovsky like 12 seasons later. So he was a marked man. He was going to die, but he got a 12-year stay of execution there. But that was funny. And then you had Mr. T in that episode, and he said, I pity the shul. Who who wrote that? Because that's just great stuff. <laughs> I have a guess that was Joel Cohen who wrote that episode and came up with the story. I'm pretty sure that's him. That's really funny. Joel Cohen is one of those guys. Nobody, nobody, you know, he's not a famous guy, even among Simpsons writers. He's not famous like John Swartzwelder Cohen, but he may be the funniest man in the world. He just thinks of more jokes. Well, we're still working on the premise. He's already spit out three jokes. He's an amazingly clever, fast guy. And again, he's the kind of guy that keeps you from getting too big an ego at the show. And then intermarriage with, he marries Anne Hathaway. Or almost, is that the one that she won the Emmy for? Yes, she did. She won that. Everybody, I wasn't there that week. Everybody fell in love with her too. Every once in a while, a guest star comes in and the the crowd, the, the writers just, just go nuts and are, are swept away. I'm going to tell you a funny story. It was a, I worked on a movie called Robots. None of this has come up, but I'm the guy who fixes a lot of animated movies people have seen. I'm the secret kind of ghostwriter on all the Ice Age movies and Despicable Me. And we worked on this movie Robots. And I'm watching it. You know, the movie was in rough form. And I'm watching the lead robot, and he's not funny at all. And I said, I said to the producers, I don't know who's playing the lead robot, but I'll bet you cast someone handsome instead of someone funny. And they said, it's Ewan McGregor. <laughs> I go, I knew it. And I said, I literally said to them, look, don't pay me. Take my, fire me, take my salary, and 
hire Ben Stiller instead for that role. Now, mind you, my salary wouldn't come close to paying for Ben Stiller, but that's how serious I was. And the female lead in that movie was that hilarious actress, Halle Berry. And Halle Berry would come in every week and just be not funny. You know, great actress, but she was so not funny. And some people just, you know, part of what's great about Halle Berry is looking at Halle Berry and just hearing her didn't sound like much of anything, but the producers were just so smitten with her every week when she'd come in. They kept, you know, she'd record and they were in love with it, and then they'd listen to it later and go, oh, that's not too good. Those are kind of the kind of punches I don't pull. I probably shouldn't have told that story because <laughs> I know Halle Berry's a big fan of your podcast. She is. She's one of my top fans. <laughs> <laughs> I can pray for that. <laughs> I did want to kind of say you did. I did enjoy the Israel episode as well. <laughs> when he took the Simpsons with Ned Flanders to Israel, I thought that was really funny. And Sasha Baron Cohen was hilarious. But the funniest thing in that episode is because when you're in Israel, everything is so historic and everything. You're looking around and you're just like, oh, wow, history everywhere. So when Marge says, uh, so historic, for all we know, Jesus could have given a talk in conference room C. Yeah, that's a great joke. <laughs> it tells you something about Simpsons, too. That episode was conceived and written by, again, uh, an Irish Catholic writer who'd never set foot in Israel. He just had the idea, knew it was a good idea. And my only contribution to the show was that they had written the part of the Israeli tour guide. And I said, oh, get Sasha Baron Cohen. I said, people don't know, but when he's doing Borat, he's actually speaking Hebrew when people, he's pretending he's speaking Kazakh. He's speaking Hebrew, so he knows Hebrew. And we got him, and it was like a six-minute part, and he just ad-libbed for six hours. He went on and on and on. He was so brilliant. But he threw in a lot of Hebrew, so we had to get some super Jew in to listen to all the takes just to make sure he wasn't swearing or saying anything uh, we couldn't use on the show. But that was great. I think you played, like, in the episode, they play... Um... A second take of uh, Jews being thrown out of Spain. Like yeah. that, that riff. That was... I mean, it's shocking stuff. It's a, I think it's, there's a Holocaust joke in there. But he made it funny. And uh, I talk in the book, I think people may know this, everybody in the world loves The Simpsons. Every 71 countries love The Simpsons until The Simpsons come to their country. And suddenly it's not so funny anymore. So Simpsons went to France and the French canceled us. And Simpsons went to Australia and we were condemned in the Australian parliament. But The Simpsons went to Israel. They went nuts for it. They loved that episode and that character, the Sasha Baron Cohen tour guide character is like a national hero in Israel. So funny. That's that's uh, that's great because they can take a joke. They can take a joke there. They have a very brutal sense of humor there. So, yeah, they really enjoyed that. So speaking of Israel, but in, in the higher sense, traveling, okay. you do a lot of traveling. Yes, I do. You tra you've been to over 130 countries. And you started a podcast called, What Am I Doing Here? <laughs> I like it. You just Jewed up the title. Yeah. <laughs> what am I doing here? So. <laughs> and it's a, uh, it's, it's a great podcast. Thank you. It's a lot of fun to listen to. And it's short. It's, they're, they're 15 minutes-ish. But you pack a lot in. You pack a lot of jokes in. But I, I guess that's what we could come to expect. <laughs> from the writer of The Simpsons. What kind of led you down the path of sitting down and finally kind of creating a podcast other than everyone's doing podcasts? Oh, that's <laughs> it. I mean, that, that was a big deterrent, in fact, was just check that there were there are two million podcasts out there. To tell people I'm doing a podcast is like telling people, I write email. Isn't that exciting? I sent an email the other day. I just travel a lot and... The two things I think that are interesting about my travel is I go to places nobody wants to go. I've been to Iraq, and I've been to Chernobyl, I've been to North Korea. And the interesting thing is, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go to any of these places. I have a wife who loves to travel, and I love my wife. And if I want to see her, I have to follow her to Libya and Tunisia and places like that. I've, I've followed my Gentile wife to 28 Muslim countries. And so I would go into work and just tell these stories every week. You know, I work one day a week at The Simpsons now. I work every Wednesday. And people go, what'd you do this week, Mike? And I would say, oh, I went to 
Cambodia or, you know, I was in Ghana, something like that. And it was finally one of the, I'll tell this, I wasn't going to say this. One of the Simpsons writers said, you got to do a podcast about this. You got to just tell these stories. He goes, you do a podcast because I know everybody in the podcast business. And I go, okay. So I bought, I wrote these scripts and I bought a couple grand worth of microphones and sound equipment and I recorded them and produced these episodes and I sent them to the guy. I go, all right, so who do you know in the podcast business? He goes, I don't know anyone in the podcast business. He was just talking like a big shot. But that was it. I started making these and it's not like most other podcasts. I mean, it is tightly scripted. It's not Anthony Bourdain or Rick Steves. It's not just general travel stories. I only tell the really funny, really insane travel stories. That's why it's short. Sometimes I, like I spent three weeks in Sudan. Now, nobody goes to Sudan, but I went there. I spent three weeks there, and I was able to get seven minutes out of that, seven minutes of funny stories. So that's it. It's it's a lifetime of kind of funny, crazy, weird travel boiled down to 15 minutes a week. And it's, as I say, I mean, I tell the stories, but I have voice actors playing people from different countries. My wife, who drags me on the trips, plays herself. And I think it's funny, and it definitely moves very fast. And I have a producer who cuts out every pause. So I'll record something that takes 17 minutes, and then it by the time it hits the air, it's 12 minutes. It barrels along. I, I, I hope people listen to it. It's called What Am I Doing Here? And it's everywhere you get podcasts. It is funny. And I I'll, I will say, everyone listening, start with episode 11, oh. which is the toilet episode. Oh, good for you. Okay. That one resonated with me. My wife, whenever we go on vacation, immediately gets backed up. She can't poo. We would be in Disney World. We went. used to go to Disney World a lot, and that was the joke. We're looking for poo. <laughs> it's just kind of a running thing where she just immediately can't. So when I'm listening to this that episode, episode 11, I was just like, this is so funny. It's a great episode to start. Any of them are great, but like that one I found to be personally uber hilarious. Yeah, if I could say... One thing I like about the podcast is it's come up a few times that I don't really have any filters. So I tell the things in the podcast that you just, that are true, but nobody has the nerve to say. So the fact that you don't, you if you take a week long trip overseas, you're not going to poop. Now that's, everybody experiences that, but nobody even discusses it with each other. And it's certainly never in a travel book. So yeah, I got an episode out of pooping overseas and the different toilets you encounter. But then there are things like the, the Northern Lights, which we've traveled twice in different countries to see the Northern Lights. The Northern Lights suck. They suck. And nobody will tell you that. They'll all come back. Oh, it's a miracle. Oh, what a wonder. They look like nothing. I'm the I'm the only one saying it. I think it was your wife that said tummy trouble. Called it tummy trouble on yeah. vacation. She calls diarrhea tummy trouble. Isn't that cute? Well, I had tum I had tummy trouble when I was in Israel, ah. and we were about to get on the plane to go home, which is for everyone listening, it's eleven hour flight. <laughs> and so this is why I always tell people: you go, you travel, you bring a modium AD. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the only thing you need when you travel. Oh, <laughs> I should get them to sponsor the podcast. Yeah, I know, right? All right, so awesome podcast. It's cool. I think it's great being able to turn in. And like you're already past the pod fade. Most podcasts don't last more than eight episodes, and you've blown past that. So. That's it. It won't go. It's never. It's not going to run ten years. I recorded thirty one of them, and I'm about near the end. I think so. Listen to it now. Get it now. It's not going to go. It won't be there in a couple of years. It's just I'm only telling true stories. That are funny. And they are funny. So everyone definitely check that out. And then you have, you write children's books as yes, well. Yes, do. Yeah. Murray Save Christmas. Huge. Boy, You Look Like Lincoln. Sounds fascinating. It's a, they're, they're okay. I, yeah. I, I liked it. You know, when you write for TV, as we've discussed, it's 10 people in a room going over every line. And it was just something I realized like 20 years ago. I'm going to write a children's book. And, you know, they're only a thousand words long. And I'll write it, and they'll either publish it or they won't. And 
It was funny. My first book was How Murray Saved Christmas that got rejected by every publisher in America. And they all read it. It was all personalized rejections. And I finally found one more publisher. And they published the book. And its, it's first week, it outsold Harry Potter. It outsold a brand new Harry Potter book. And it wound up selling 9,000 copies. is considered a best-selling children's book. And How Murray Saved Christmas sold 200,000 copies. And everyone, everyone else had read it and said, no thanks. So I've written 20 children's books. And it's all like that. I get an idea. And I just write it. And I mail it out. And maybe they'll print it. Maybe they won't. That's great, though. That's yeah. awesome. The Simpsons. I asked Al Jean this question. I'll ask you the same question. Is When it eventually does end, how in your mind? Should it end? You know, we've been thinking about it since season two. How are we going to wrap this up? And I swear, I've never heard a good idea. I never heard a good way to wrap it up. And when you think about it, almost every final episode of every series sucks. Seinfeld, you know, they almost never did a bad episode and then did a horrendously bad wrap up. Cheers had a bad finale and Frasier, I don't even remember how that ended. Last episodes are hard. I don't know. I don't know how it'll end. But, you know, now with every show, and especially with cartoons, they don't exactly end. I mean, it'll go off the air, and then they'll reboot it in five years. And there's always time to do... They certainly will make another movie. And maybe they'll do Teenage Simpsons. I mean, that's something we barely touched on. So I think it'll just keep coming and coming for a long time beyond it. It finally getting canceled. Mike, how can people keep up with you on the socials? Listen to the podcast. I'll pitch it one more time. What am I doing here? Everybody gets the title wrong. What am I doing here? Uh, you're gonna, I'm only on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter. I, I'm just there to write. I try. It's a challenge to myself. I try and write one good joke every day at Mike Reese Writer. Mike Reese Writer. Reese's R-E-I-S-S. And uh, nobody who's ever reached out to me on Twitter uh, didn't get a response. So I read everything and I write back to everyone. My social media advice would be to get on Instagram because I think with the travel podcast, it's the perfect kind of medium for it because you can do pictures from the trips that relate to the episodes and promote the episodes. Yeah, I should do that. I didn't even want to be on Twitter. I'll tell you, I'm hoping this is the last boring story I tell, which was for years, people were telling me, hey, I follow you on Twitter. And I would always go, I'm not on Twitter. I don't do any social media. You know, I'm old. And but they kept saying, oh, I love you on Twitter. And I finally go on Twitter. And sure enough, there I am. And some guy is not only posting as me, but he's he's posting photos from my vacations and all this stuff. And he had friended my wife on Facebook and was sort of keeping on top of my schedule. And I would have let him keep doing it because he was doing a really nice job, except he wasn't funny. It would just be me, you know, sledding in Colorado. And, me, and Mike Reese was saying, sledding is fun. And I go, I can't. So I tracked the guy down and I said, would you mind terribly if I took over my own Twitter account? He said, well, if you think you can do it. And that's how I got on Twitter. And so I've been on ever since. And it's fun. It's a it's a little exercise and a challenge for myself. But I'm just there putting jokes up. You won't ever see a picture of what I, you know, what I had for lunch or something like that. Though I, I bet it would be amazing to see your food. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely think about the Instagram idea, though, for the yeah. podcast. Yeah, okay. I think, well, I can't thank you enough for hanging out with me. It's, oh, I've had I a blast. It. I loved it. And by, by talking to you tonight, I didn't have to go to an off-Broadway show. So I really am grateful to you. That's amazing. But perhaps I can use that quote in a uh, <laughs> material. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's really been great. I loved all the stories. Everyone check out What Am I Doing Here? Mike Reese's podcast, Springfield Confidential, his book. You can get it on Amazon. Google it all. Check it out. Mike, thank you so much. It was great fun. Thank you, Jim. All right. How amazing was Mike Reese, everyone? So fun. I warned you. It was going to be great. So many amazing stories. Mike does not hold back. Loved every second of it. Of course, check out The Simpsons. Of course, check out Mike's book, Springfield Confidential. 
You can get on Amazon, anywhere books are sold. And definitely check out Mike's podcast, What Am I Doing Here with Mike Reese. It is a hilarious travel podcast like we talked about. It's short, sweet, and super funny. So add that to your list. You will not regret it. Well, the interview is over, so that means we are nearing the end of the podcast. Episode 80 is nearing completion, but it's not done yet. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, we have one more exciting piece of the podcast left. That's right. A trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at Hashtag Roundup. Download the absolutely always free Hashtag Roundup app for your Google Android phone or Apple iPhone. It's totally free and you'll receive a push notification every time a new game starts. Also follow us on Twitter at Hashtag Roundup. Play along and one day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin Show. Fame and fortune await you. This week's hashtag is Simpsons themed. Did you see that coming? I bet you did. Hashtag The Simpsons A Song, the ultimate mashup between The Simpsons and a song title brought to us by Musical Hashtags, a weekly game on Hashtag Roundup. Head on over to Twitter after you're inspired by all the tweets I'm about to read to you. Tweet your own hashtag The Simpsons A Song. I'll look for it. As always, retweet the tweeters that are retweeted at Jeff Jawaskin Show. Also, they're listed in the show notes. Show them some love. One day you'll make the list and you'll want them to show you love. So start laying those karma trails now. All right, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, hashtag The Simpsons A Song. Cowabunga style. Wake me up before you do. Do. Tears of Krusty the Clown. I will always love a poo. And, uh, no, I'm not going to do that. Bart out of hell. Do. A deer. A female deer. I saw mom kissing Santa's little helper. I'll be Homer for Christmas. Nothing compares to stew. These are some amazing hashtag The Simpsons A Song mashup tweets. But it doesn't stop there. Donut stop thinking about tomorrow. Donut stop. It'll soon be here. Achy Breaky Bart, the Pleasure Principal Skinner. Burns, baby, burns. Excellent. Mohemian Rhapsody. It's grain and men. Hallelujah, it's grain and men. <laughs> Give my regards to Bartway. Take me Homer tonight. And the final hashtag The Simpsons a song tweet. In the midnight hour, she cried mo, mo, mo. All right, good for mo. And good for all of you and hashtag Simpsons a song tweeters. Fabulous job all around. Got a few of those ditties in my head for a while now, I'm sure. Well, here we are, everyone, at the end of yet another episode of Live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin Show. Episode 80 has come and gone, but let us be thankful that it happened. Thanks again to my special guest, Mike Reese. And thanks to my other special guest, Casey Ryan Plot, for his amazing voice work earlier in the show. And, of course, I would never forget, thanks to all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me, and I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show, and we'll see you next time.